This week, we're going to kind of follow up on what we did last week. Um, if you were here last week, what we did is we put forth a positive theology of sexuality. Kind of what sex um, was intended for, the context it was intended for, intended for and the purposes um, of sexuality. And um, before we jump in, I'm going to go ahead and read. And we're reading from two different places. And we're going to be drawing principles from these two different places, but through all of Scripture. And what we're going to do this week is begin to put teeth, kind of put application to what we said last week. So this will be a little bit more applicative um, and practical, hopefully. Um, but I'm going to read these verses that we have on our sheet from James 5 and then also from 1 Corinthians 6. This is James 5, 16, and then verses 19 and 20. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And then also from 1 Corinthians 16 through 20, uh, 6, 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that God would teach us. <clears throat> Lord, we have nothing to rest on in our own lives. We have no reason to approach your throne with confidence if you do not extend grace and mercy toward us. I pray now that as we consider your word tonight, that we would reach for that grace and find that it's even you who draws us, that it's even you that gives us the the strength to reach and to take hold of your promises by faith. Father God, we stand helpless unless you come and help us. Be with us now. Teach us through your word and with your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week what we said was, Kind of our main point again to, uh, to start out was that your sexuality, everything that you are as a sexual being, is to be only expressed in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman for the purposes of procreation, recreation, and union. And that was the picture we drew of sexuality last week. And that means a couple of things before we get into the rest of tonight. That means a couple of things about what sex is not. And I want to say these things. I want to reinforce these things. One thing that means is that sex is not dirty. That sex is not bad. In fact, it's glorious. And the Song of Solomon is a deeply graphic depiction of the fact that the Lord loves sexuality. And He loves the deep pleasure you receive in it. So one of these things means that sex is not dirty. One of the things it also means is sex is not just biological. Sex is not just a physical act. It's something that involves all of who you are. And Scripture says this, and 1 Corinthians 6, which you just read, says this, but everybody's saying it. And the only time we refuse to kind of 
actually buying that, the only time we lie to ourselves and say, oh, it's just biological, oh, it has no impact in me beyond just kind of this one-time physical moment, is when we're there and we're tempted. And we choose to believe the lie that actually, in a sense, most of the world's actually not even believing anymore. Uh, this is a, an amazing book called Unhooked. It's uh, this woman, not a believer, Laura Sessions Step, spends a lot of time with several girls in high school and college um, over a period of years and talks about them, about their sexuality, and kind of how they've been involved in different relationships. She develops a very intimate relationship. They're very um, detailed with her and how things are. And she just wants to know, what does it look like to be a girl and to engage in different forms of sexuality between the ages of 16 and 22? And so this book kind of chronicles the years of interaction. And at the end of the book, she talks with one girl uh, named Alicia. And this last chapter is about Alicia. And um, this is kind of what Laura Session Step says about her conversations with Alicia after years of being in and out of different kinds of relationships. And this is what unbeliever, atheist Laura Session Step says... A girl can tuck a Trojan condom into her purse on Saturday night, but there is no such device to protect her heart. William Beardsley, a psychiatry professor at Harvard University, says, Girls who hook up... This is true of everybody, but this book is about girls. Girls who hook up are too quick to believe they can simply decide not to get hurt. The big issue for me is it's hard to believe true sexual intimacy is unconnected from personal intimacy. The psychiatrist said, these women need to be careful not to fool themselves. And this is what Alicia says, one of the students she spent time with. Your mind and your heart don't split down the middle because your physiology connects the two. She wrote, think about it. When you are emotionally close to someone, you appreciate physical interactions with them. You hug your friends. You kiss people on the cheek. You link arms when you walk. You lay your head on the shoulders of a guy friend when you're watching a movie. And when you're physically close to someone... You seek out emotional closeness as much as you might fight against it. Nobody is saying sex is just a physical act anymore. It's not just biological. It's not dirty. It's not biological. Here's the other thing. It's not private. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul, in the chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's dealing with sexual immorality, a specific case of sexual immorality in the church at this time. And he's dealing with it, and he's calling to confront this guy who's actually sleeping with, it's either his mother or his stepmother. Um, The text isn't necessarily clear. And the church is not dealing with it. And this is what Paul says. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And what Paul is saying is, this guy's individual sexual sin affects the church. And we see that in a lot of ways most practically today. And the mere fact that no one's talking about it in the church. That within the church, there are just an incredible amount of number of women. Statistics are completely overwhelming. Who are struggling with addiction in the privacy of their own heart and in their own uh, rooms and their own homes. That there are people that are struggling with sin in a very private matter. And the thing is... The reason they're struggling and the reason people are struggling alone in the church is because no one's dealing with their sexual sin in the church. And so as everybody hides and deals with this stuff in private, it actually expands in the church. The leaven goes throughout all the church. Everybody lives in fear and everybody lives alone. Sexuality has deeply social implications. It is not a private matter. It's not only a private matter in terms of sexual sin, 
It's not a private matter when it's engaged of well. Many of you have already been affected by the fact that Elizabeth and I are married and this is a part of our life because you've come to our house and you've been blessed and maybe stressed a little bit as you've interacted with our family. Our family is a social implication of Elizabeth and I's marriage and the things that we do in our bedroom. It really is. There are social implications for your sexuality. It is not a private affair. It's not dirty. It's not biological. It's not private. Lastly, it's not love. And what we said last week is that it's a signpost It's a sign of covenantal love and it points to and it nourishes and it illustrates the entirety of your union with your spouse. The union you have in all the different aspects of who you are. But it's not only that, and this is big, and this is the thing this semester is really all about. Um, It's not what we're doing this semester. We're not working toward a picture of what a healthy marriage and healthy relationships look like for the sake of having healthy relationships and healthy marriage. The goal of marriage and the goal of the semester is not for y'all to have good marriage. That's really not what we're trying to do. That's a very short-sighted approach to, to, to reading Scripture. And it, it kind of, if that was only our approach, we wouldn't be understanding Scripture. The goal of approaching and figuring out what a healthy marriage looks like is this. It's for us to be equipped with a helper suitable inside of covenant in the manner that God designed for the purpose of building His kingdom. Everything we're talking about this semester is about kingdom stuff. It's about Jesus fixing the world. And marriage is one of the beautiful and glorious ways that He calls us into union with somebody so we can be agents of change in the world. Marriage and sexuality are not goals in and of themselves. They prepare us for and they point us to the greater reality of the final marriage between Jesus and His bride, the church. A healthy marriage drives you and it drives your spouse and your family towards Jesus. When you forgive one another, when you lay down your life for one another, when you set down all your hopes and dreams and desires for the sake of another person, when, uh, when you get that love is not feeling good and having a good time when things are going well, but rather the highest expression of love you will have towards your spouse and toward the people that you love is actually the promise to be there and meet them and walk with them in the worst times. When you sacrifice, when you set aside yourself, when you say, I'm committing myself not for my own happiness, but I'm committing myself to you for your holiness, you're doing, in a sense, what really is the highest and most intimate form of gospel proclamation. You're preaching the gospel to your spouse and to your family. Marriage and sexuality within it are ministry to your spouse. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh, one flesh. And this is the very next words he says. This mystery is profound, and I'm talking about Christ in the church. And what Paul is saying is that marriage and sexuality, one fleshness, as God intended it, is teaching us about Jesus' love for the church and the unity and the oneness we have with Jesus. Marriage is supposed to be the place, y'all, where we taste, where we most intimately and passionately and excitingly taste and picture and are nourished with the gospel. Marriage is supposed to be a place that nourishes us as a Christian, that grows us toward Jesus and into grace. And for that reason, we have to long for our sexuality to be reclaimed by the gospel.
if our sexuality is supposed to be a physical illustration of covenant love, and a, an illustration not just of covenant love between you and your spouse, but it's also an illustration and a picture of God's oneness with His people, then we cannot not deal with the sexual brokenness in our lives. We have to bring our expectations about marriage, our expectations about sex, our fantasies, our dating relationships, our obsessions, our pornography, masturbation, the casual glances at less offensive images, even the light stuff. We have to bring all those things to the gospel and seek healing. And I'm not going to spend time developing this point, but I want to tell you an assumption that we're operating under tonight. I know all of y'all are in different places. Some of our stories are similar. Some of them are different. Some of you um, have been to places where you don't want to go. Some of you have been forced to places you don't want to go. Some of you have uh, been to places you don't want to go by yourself in, in your room. Some of you, most of us, feel ensnared by different things. But I'm operating under this assumption. Some of you maybe haven't dated anybody. Maybe this is something that's still new to you. This is the assumption we're operating under because we're operating under Scripture. We're all broken sexually. That when Genesis says that every thought of the heart of man is only evil all the time, that means that every thought of the heart of man is only evil all the time. That our sexuality is broken. That when Ephesians says that we are dead in our transgressions, that not just like some of the areas we struggle where we are dead, everything about us is corrupted by the fall. We're all broken sexually. And no one enters into marriage with complete purity of body, mind, and soul. And the notion of virginity, this is what virginity means. Virginity means sexually new. Sexually that you've never in any any way, shape, or form been awakened or been touched, whether it's in your fantasy life, whether it's by yourself, or whether it's with another person. That you've neither begun to be sexually to be sexual in any capacity towards anyone in your mind or with your body or by yourself. And when you realize that that's what virginity is, that it's not you haven't had intercourse, but that sin hasn't touched any part of your sexuality, that means none of us enter into marriage as virgins. That's really what that means. And what we've done in the church and what we've done as Christians is we've actually created a second class of citizens which is unbiblical and evil. By saying, if you haven't had intercourse, then you're this pure, holier being. We are all desperately sexually broken. And maybe one of the dangerous places to be is to think that you're not like other people because other people have these other issues. They're second-class citizens. I'm a virgin. We're all sexually broken, and we all need Jesus to forgive us and to heal us. Scripture tells us we're operating under that scriptural print principle that we are all sexually broken and here's what else i know scripture teaches that culturally and statistically i also know that most of us in this room are in places in private that we don't tell anyone else about whether it's in our mind or it's before our computer screens wherever it is most of us are in places in our minds and in privacy that we don't tell anyone about and so for the christian that is here tonight You cannot be complacent in dealing with your sexual brokenness. If we're complacent in seeking Jesus for the restoration of our sexuality, we're robbing marriage, 
and the beautiful physical union that occurs within it of its ability to nourish us with the gospel. We're actively choosing to have less than what God intended. And if we looked at our parents' marriages, can you look at your parents' marriages and, and the things, the marriages that we see in the world and we encounter all the time, and can you say, they're growing towards Jesus because of this marriage, that their sexuality is nourishing them, growing them in the gospel. We have to begin to fight against the sexual brokenness in our lives. And when we do, you know, marriage becomes glorious because it come, becomes a place where the kingdom of God is restored, where people are nourished, and where peace goes into the world. If it's not, it becomes a partnership. Marriage just becomes a partnership. If you're a non-believer tonight, if you're not a Christian, this is what's going to feel like. You're going to get to see an in-house conversation, an in-house look on how our brokenness is redeemed by our Savior. So the question for us then is, how does Jesus go about restoring our sexuality? And we have two points tonight. Um... The first thing he does in the outline, it says, bring your sin to Jesus, fight your sin with Jesus. I would say this. He brings our sin out of the darkness and into the light. The first thing that happens is our sin comes out of the darkness and into the light of the gospel, out of the darkness and into the light of the gospel, and to Jesus. James 5.16 is really what this whole night is about. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. To begin to be restored sexually, we have to start talking about ourselves. And there are a lot of reasons not to. One reason not to is the fear of shame. We live in a shame-based culture. And even within Christian groups and within versions of the church, versions of the church are shame-based and shame-driven. Because if you think about it, the last people that you probably want to tell, if you're like me, the last people that you want to tell about the privacy of your sexual perversion and your sexual brokenness as Christians. And in fact, if we thought about we might mostly be comfortable telling unbelievers about the struggles and privacy in our dating relationships and our heart, wherever it is. Fear of shame drives us away from dealing with our sin. It is a tool of the flesh and it is a tool of Satan to draw us away from the gospel. Matthew 12, 22, the gospel writer quotes Isaiah 43. When he quotes Isaiah 43, what Matthew is saying is, this passage in Isaiah is about Jesus, and this is what Jesus says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not clench. Y'all, Jesus doesn't crush broken people. He heals broken people. And the only people he crushes are the Pharisees, the people who refuse to deal with their brokenness. Fear of shame keeps us from bringing the darkness in our life into the light of the gospel because what we've mistakenly thought is the church is a place where you bring all your goodness to show everybody how good you're a Christian, but that's not where the church is. The church is a place where you bring everything you wish you weren't and you find that the gospel heals you. Don't let fear of shame drive you away from the healing and the freedom that is offered in the gospel. And here's what is true. It'll be embarrassing. And it'll be awkward conversations. And I can't promise that it won't be, and I can almost guarantee it is going to be those things. Don't let those things make you shy away from finding healing from Jesus. There's a fear of shame. There's also a fear of loss. Because we love our sin, and we hate our sin, but we kind of love it. 
And the prospect of speaking it and being forced to deal with it grips us with fear because we love it. And what sin really is in a lot of ways is our coping mechanism for living in a godless world, for dealing with the brokenness in the world. One um, counselor says this, Chap Clark says, Our sexual obsession maybe isn't just an arbitrary pursuit of something illicit. Rather, it's our response to profound loneliness and alienation. You see, we use sexuality to feel in control. We use it to feel alive. We use it as a shortcut to a false form of intimacy. We want to feel intimacy, so we're willing to jump there. Mary Calderon says this, The girl plays at sex for which she is not ready because fundamentally what she wants is love. The boy plays at love for which he is not ready because he fundamentally wants his sex. People are shortcutting to intimacy and using sexuality to pretend to have intimacy for a while. We use it to stop feeling lonely. We use it to hold on to people. We use it to feel desired, to feel valued, to feel wanted. We use it to deal with anxiety. Y'all, we need our sin to cope. It's how we deal with this world. And that's exactly where our sinful hearts want to keep us. That's the tool that sin and is the tool that Satan uses to keep us ensnared in our sin. Those are reasons not to. What are the reasons to bring your sin out into the light of the gospel? That's because of this, y'all. The gospel is healing. There's freedom in the love of Jesus. There's freedom to bring yourself to the cross. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. You know, the life of a Christian is not the life of a hypocrite. We say that sometimes. I've heard that around. The life of a Christian is the life of someone constantly repenting. It means bringing all your stuff to Jesus and confessing that none of it is good enough. Um, Some people celebrate Reformation Day on Halloween. We're not. But I'm glad the Reformation took place. But... um, on the day that Martin Luther posted those 95 theses on the, Witten, on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, when he posted those 95 theses, that's the single largest church event that took place that reshaped Christianity in the world like since Pentecost, literally since the first century. When he nailed those 95 theses to the door that he argued with the church on and said, we've got to come back to these issues This was the very first thing he said. This was his first thesis he argued with that sparked the Reformation. Thesis number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of a believer is to be one of repentance. Our life is the life of a repentance. And when you get that, when you approach God that way, you find that He doesn't dismiss you. He embraces you over and over. A hypocrite is somebody who says they believe one thing and does another. The life of a Christian is someone who says, no, 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 Jesus is my righteousness. That's all I have. I have nothing on my own. The life of a Christian is the life of repentance, bringing your junk to Jesus, seeking forgiveness and seeking rescue, and not then proclaiming to the world, now look how I live, but proclaiming to the world, look what the King did for me and is doing in the world. That's the life of a Christian. That's the life of repentance. That's not hypocritical because what we're saying is, no, 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 don't look at me. 
Only look at me because all I have to boast in is in Jesus. All I'm good for is telling you, this is who I depend on. That's not hypocrisy, y'all. That's beautiful gospel repentance. So what is the application at this point? You know, this is the most important thing I can say tonight. Tell someone. Please talk. Please talk. Tell me. Tell Elizabeth. Tell Soren. Tell someone, uh, a father, a pastor, a mother. Tell your peer. Tell someone. And I know that you don't want to. And that's exactly how our sinful hearts wants us to feel. And faith and repentance is not waiting for the right timing and waiting for the right feeling to finally tell someone about what you're struggling with alone. Faith and repentance is in the face of all the wrong feelings running to Jesus and saying, please heal me. And that healing begins when you stop dealing with this alone. Because what James is saying when he calls us to confess to one another is he's saying the church is the real vehicle for you to begin healing in this area. The number one marker for someone spiraling out of control in their relationships. Elizabeth and I have not been married long, but we've already had several friends our age get divorces. And in retrospect, what was happening all along when we thought they had a great marriage is things were rotting from the inside out. And they started rotting years ago, but we didn't find out until finally one day somebody left somebody. And in retrospect, when we look back in their life, there was a very clear pattern years before anybody knew they had issues in their uh, marriage. And the very clear and consistent pattern among every single person we know that got divorced was this. They stopped talking to people. They avoided fellowship and they avoided intimacy and they avoided accountability. Y'all talk to somebody. James is not saying that we have the ability to forgive your sins, that I have your ability the ability, Soren, Elizabeth, your friends, whoever it is, not that they have the ability to forgive your sins for you. What James means is that you're not going to believe or feel forgiven until you bring your stuff to the body of Christ and let us embrace you and walk with you and pray with you and tell you what Jesus tells us in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. This is what the psalmist says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. And I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Y'all, you were made to be free from this. And that begins by talking about it today. Tonight. There's not a right time for this. The right time is now. So tell someone. Name the darkness that is in your heart and in your life. And even the act of naming, you'll begin to diminish its power. And you'll find that God's grace cannot be exalted. And that there's deep, sweet grace and mercy for you over and over and over again. But the door starts, the first door to healing is to begin to talk about it. Let's begin to be the people in the church that make the church a place where people can come and deal with this and everybody doesn't have to hide in privacy. I want to say one thing that actually 
doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we're saying tonight. This is an aside for a second, only because the issue is completely different, but the application is the same. <clears throat> there are some of you whose sexuality was attacked by someone else. It could have been recently. It could have been a long time ago. You had sexual violence done against you, and to begin to be sinned against in this way is not the same thing as what we're talking about tonight. You, you do have a sinful heart, but you're not sin. You're not sinful for being sinned against. You're not dirty for being sinned against. And what is true is that what was done to you, if you're confused about it, if you don't know, you need to talk to people. What was done to you was violence, not just against your body, but against your soul. Because what's done to you affects all of you. We believe as Christians that God created us as physical beings, embodied souls. And what that means is, when you get depressed emotionally, your body gets exhausted and you get sick. When your body gets sick, you also get depressed emotionally. What happens to your body happens to you. And when these things were done to your body, it wreaked havoc on your soul as well. This issue is totally different from what we're talking about, but the application is the same. You cannot find healing. And this is healing from a wound, not from a sin. You cannot bear this without the church. You have to talk to somebody. What was done to you was unjust. And there's justice in the gospel. And what was done to you was destructive. And there's renewal and there's healing in the gospel. And what was done to you has made you believe wrong things about who God is and about yourself and about the world. And there's truth in the gospel. You cannot walk through this by yourself. You can't hide. You can't run from it. You can't deal with it alone. Please, please talk. That's an aside. I want to make sure I got that out there. But I want to move on now to the second point. The first point is bring your sin out of the darkness and out of privacy and bring it to the people of God and let them bring the gospel and the freedom that Jesus brings with His blood to you. Now, secondly, now we've got to fight with Jesus. Fight against our sin with alongside of Jesus. Not fight with Jesus. <laughs> And I want to make a couple of points of application. I've been reticent to give real concrete application about a lot of these issues that we've been going through this semester because I really want to stay uh, in the heart of Scripture and to make sure I'm saying things what Scripture is saying. Um, that's why we're not going to say a rule like don't kiss or we're, going to say, we're not going to say a rule like don't date. Um, but before I give points of application, I want to be clear about this. If you've been waiting for a list of things to do to cut this stuff out of your life or to be the right person then this list is not helpful for you. But if the name of Jesus is sweet to you, if you've begun to taste that He has exceeding grace for even people like us, even people like me who stands up here as a minister of the gospel and is deeply sexual broken, y'all, He called a sexually, deeply sexual broken person to come and preach the Word of God to you. That's the gospel right there. He calls even people like me he forgives even people like me. If Jesus is your king, if you've been hearing all semester, not a list of things to do to be the perfect wife or husband or to have the perfect marriage, but what you've heard all semester, the pulse beat that's been underneath everything that we've been saying all semester, namely, that this is all about Jesus. 
that your marriage is about Jesus and your relationships are about Jesus, that you can't love until you know the love of Jesus. And if you're beginning to find yourself in Him, then what I hope is that these are some ways that you and I and the people of God can war with the King against the darkness in our hearts. So we're going to get practical, very practical than we've been for a second. The first thing is this. Get accountability software. No, there's not like Matthew 7, 3. Get accountability software. This is not an easy fix. If you're not dealing with your heart and you're not moving towards Jesus, this doesn't mean anything. And I would advise you even to not take the advice. But if you're beginning to get this thing about sexuality is about Jesus, that it's something we're supposed to long to protect because it's this glorious gospel tool that we've messed up with our own lives, get software for your computer. I have what a thing called safe eyes. And the reason I have it is because my heart is dark. And if I don't have God's people seeing everything I look at on the internet, I will look at things I'm not supposed to look at. That's why I have internet software. Not because I'm a nice guy, but I want to set an example for you all. That's not why I have it. I have it because my heart is that dark. And I need the church to intervene for me. I need God's people to intervene for me. I put two things on there. They're both great things. Covenant Eyes and Internet Safety is safe as the one that I have. They cost money. If that's, uh, they're, I think, anywhere between $50 and $70. If that's too expensive for you, fast for two days and buy it. I'm dead serious. Fast for two days and buy it. Two days of not eating is worth the price of your soul. Am I right? Is that an amen? Is white laughter the version of an amen? Um, Here's the thing. The software is not perfect. It's incredibly inconvenient. It's really inconvenient to fight against stuff like this. And that's precisely Jesus' point in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. When he says, You've heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. What Jesus is saying is sometimes fighting sin is deeply inconvenient. If this is you in any way, shape, or form, I don't care about how consistent or inconsistent it is, protect yourself. Ask God's people to come and look at everything you're looking at on the Internet. These, both of these things send emails to people. Um, so they see what you're looking at. And when you turn it off, it sends an email to them and says, you turn off your filter, y'all. Let the church fight with you for your sexual purity. The second thing I would say, in broader application, pursue friendships where you can have these conversations. We all need friends who are going to pursue us. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, and then keep watching yourself unless you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Now, the reason that I'm here tonight is that I have a beautiful wife, and the reason I have four beautiful children, and the reason I stand up here and the church has said, hey, you should go and preach the gospel, and elders laid hands on me and made me minister, is not because I'm a super Christian. I'll tell you where it started. It started in college when a friend of mine, junior year, came to me and said, Britton, I really need help because I've been to really dark places on the internet I never thought I would go. And no one ever said that to me before. And no one ever allowed me to say that to them. And when he began to deal with it, 
and asked me to go there with him, for the first time in my life, I could tell him that, my, that about myself. And I could begin to deal with those things about me. The reason I'm here tonight is because my senior year in college, my campus minister asked me about where I was sexually with my girlfriend, and I lied to his face. And he didn't believe me. And he went and asked my girlfriend, and he came back and he said, you lied to me. And then he weeped, and he te- preached the gospel to me one-on-one. The reason I'm here tonight is because I had friends who were willing to go to bat against me for me. Y'all, find these friendships. Initiate these friendships. Be the person who has the awkward first conversation. You cannot get to this by yourself. And not only that, we all need you. Pursue these friendships. Lastly, this is really kind of the heart of everything we're saying. Stop trusting yourself. That's really what we're saying. Um, within relationships, I'm trying to avoid to put boundaries, but we'll say this, um, within dating relationships, it is good to express affection. I see nothing in Scripture that prohibits that. God calls us to love on each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. Um, it is good to express affection, that you are fond of somebody, that you like them, that they're dear to you. What we've got to begin to differentiate about in our dating relationships is the difference between affection and arousal. I don't know where y'all are in your relationships, but I know this. Arousal has a purpose beyond itself. Its purpose is to prepare and to lead you into intercourse. Arousal is not a place of stasis. It's not a place you're supposed to stay in. And what's happening in a lot of relationships is that you're trying to live at this level of arousal and you weren't supposed to stay right there. And this is why dating couples make out on the couch for two or three hours. Y'all, that's the most frustrating thing in the world. No married couple does that. Married couples go and have sex. They don't make out for two or three hours. Arousal is to get to that thing at the end. All right, what, what's happening in a lot of relationships is it's kind of like a friend of mine, David Jones at Stanford, says it this way. It's like an escalator. You've kind of jumped on, and you've gone halfway up and realized you can't go to the end, and so you're halfway up the escalator kind of trying to maintain the place. And this is why it's kind of thrilling, but at the same time it's frustrating, and it always feels incomplete, is because arousal is not a place of stasis. It's supposed to lead you to intercourse. If you're running in place or if you're in a relationship, you've gone to the top of the escalator, saving our illustration. This is what's true. You're not going to be able to stop yourself. This is not something you and your girlfriend or you and your boyfriend are going to be able to work through by yourselves. And you need to be in loving relationships with people with the same gender who are going to go to the mats with you and call you back towards Jesus' beautiful design for marriage and sexuality. And I'll say this last. We're actually going to talk about this more. Hope this meet. Hope y'all come back. So talk about this more in two weeks. Paul actually speaks very forthrightly about this, about being in a, a um, serious state sexually with someone you're not married to. He says in 1 Corinthians seven nine, if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. I know y'all don't want to hear it, but I'm going to side with Paul on this one. If you're in a place in your life where you can't get married, where your priorities right now are school and career, that's really okay. 
What this passage is not saying is, you can't put school and career first. What it is saying is, if school and career are first, and you're in a place in your relationship where you need to get married, then get married or break up. If school and career are priorities or other things, that's really fine. But don't date and act married unless you're willing to get married. If not, I'm not saying dating is acting married, but I'm saying don't act married within your relationship if you're not willing to get married. And if you're not willing to get married, get out of the relationship for the sake of your soul and for the sake of their soul. Stop trusting yourself to fix yourself and be willing. And be willing for this reason, because of the grace Jesus has shown you and because of His everlasting love to you, and because that you have an eternal inheritance, and that the things in this world are going to fade and die, the moth's going to destroy, and the thieves will steal, but you have an eternal inheritance that Jesus purchased for you with His blood. Stop, trying to trust, stop trusting yourself to fix yourself, and because of those things, be willing to take maybe drastic steps to seek not just an arbitrary sexual ethic, but the glorious design for sexuality that God has in store for you. Let's pray.